0: Hi there, I'm Neve Shaw and this is Humans of Space, a podcast about curious people. More specifically, it's chats with people that I've met along the journey so far in getting to space. People from many parts of the world, people who've inspired me, people who do interesting things, know interesting stuff, have figured out great things, or people who want to change the world. Curious people who are happy to chat with me about their lives, their passions and explore together what drives us to be the people we need to be. I like to think that Humans of Space is a blend of space, science, curiosity, and creativity for ears of all kinds. But I guess that's up to you to decide. Talking today to Dr. Aidan Kelly, who works at the Astronaut Centre in Cologne for the European Space Agency, and there he is Science Officer dealing with a lot of interesting projects regarding future exploration. And you're very welcome today, Aidan. Thank you very much for taking the time to join us.
1: Thank you for the invitation to chat.
0: You're normally extremely busy all the time. Isn't that fair to say?
1: (laughs) I like to keep busy for sure, because things are really kicking off in exploration now in Europe and around the world. It's uh, increasingly more busy, which is a, a good state to be in, I find.
0: I met you first in 2016, you very kindly gave me a tour of the Astronaut Centre and I've been back and forth ever since. I don't think I've actually physically seen you in the building since (laughs) because you've been so busy, but I've been there back and forth. As an Irishman in such a senior position in terms of future exploration, you've achieved quite a lot already. Your career is already in the rise at ESA. Can you briefly take us through your career in getting to ESA in terms of like what you studied and how you think you managed to secure such a, a coveted role?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, a lot of luck is the answer, I guess. But um, yeah. to give a bit of perspective, historically, I was always deeply inspired by space. Obviously, this was something uh, I grew up watching the likes of Star Trek and Star Wars and anything with stars. My mother used to always put me down in front of the shuttle launches when they were on TV. And that's, that had an impact. I, I also grew up beside Dublin Airport. So aircraft aerospace, this this really you know appealed to me for a long time. It's a bit of a strange turn then. That I actually ended up doing my bachelor's uh, of science at DCU in computer applications because this was at the beginning of the, the dot com boom, and uh, it was seen as a very good and stable kind of you know job to go for. Yeah. and I was good at it. And I really enjoyed it. It's, it was a lot of fun. It still is a lot of fun programming. Um, but after I completed that degree, I seen the kind of jobs that were being offered and it wasn't really as appealing to me as when I had begun it. Then I took a bit of a detour and did a, a master's in electronics to try to mm. expand out my, my curriculum a little bit and, and, and maybe find something new that really took my fancy. And it was during this time that I actually met uh, my master's project supervisor, who's Professor Patrick McNally of, of DCU. Mm. And he, he introduced me to the wonderful world of material science with an interesting project for my master's thesis, uh, trying to print light-emitting material using a modified printer. It was a perfect combination of MacGyver skills and programming <laughs> and crazy ideas, and it was deeply appealing. Uh, so that was a, that's a, a really lasting uh, impression on me. And later on, I would then meet with Professor Rinaldi again and have a chance to, to do a PhD with him, which I'm extremely grateful for. Yeah. And this PhD was in material science. Then really during the last parts of my time in this PhD, that I kind of realized that material science can actually be a gateway to, to space. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I was actually visiting a university in Freiburg here in Germany to, to get some skills on a particular process I needed to master for my, for my PhD work. And uh, when I was there, the, one of the doctors who was like, showing me the, the labs and the facilities had this door in their office, which was covered in all these mission badges. Uh, and he was a material scientist. So I kind of said to him, like, well, uh, you know, how, how did you manage to get all these missions into space? He's like, oh, you know, material science and space, they're like, you know, same, they're almost the same thing in many ways. You know, you, you do a lot of interesting material science work in space, like crystal glow experiments and so forth. Yeah. And then I realized like, oh, actually, you know, maybe, maybe just maybe uh, that this is actually the, the link. This is the, the connection that I've been looking for um, between my background, my interests, and my experience with something I'd love to do for the rest of my, my life, which is to work in space. And After I graduated my PhD, then I was, I was doing lecturing and researching up at DCU for three years. Yeah. I made one initial attempt to join ESA uh, via the Advanced Concept Team, which is based at our technical center in the uh, Netherlands. And uh, Unfortunately, I didn't get it the first time. I was, I was only the backup candidate. But that gave me a, a flavor for, for yeah. what ESA was about. And you know, once I'd seen SDEC, I, could, I it's a super place to visit. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it is. It's amazing. So it just redoubled your efforts. And then the, the following year, I seen an opportunity at EAC looking for someone to work on, on energy systems for lunar exploration, which is just an incredible title. Uh, so I took my, took my gamble at it and uh, I got it. That's kind of how I, I, I snuck in. It was a, a mixture of the right interesting skill set and the right opportunities at the right time.
0: And how far into your PhD did you go into that office where you saw those mission patches on the door?
1: I was about two or three years into my PhD, and Eve, And yeah. uh, before that, I had no clear idea how you would do something in space coming from an Irish background. The situation has improved radically now in the last decade. There's a lot more opportunities now and people, I think, are a lot more aware of what ESA is. But before that, it, to me, it was, it was opaque. I had no clear guide or, or direction for how I could do, you know, work for space. Probably the best idea I had was maybe going over to NASA and working over there. You yeah, know?
0: Yeah. Um,
1: seeing that door, I can still remember it super clear, seeing those mission badges, uh, really kind of clicked in my head. I said, like, actually, there is a connection here between what I'm doing, what I'm studying, and what I could potentially do uh, for space. And after that, then, um, increasingly more and more, I paid attention to where my work could be leveraged into that area.
0: Yeah,
1: uh, yeah. I even did some crazy... Projects with people to try to get some experience in the space, you know, link up with people, build my network in this area. But all of that was really prelude um, to, to joining EAC and, and ESA after that. You know.
0: It's so random in <laughs> a way. What would have happened if you didn't see the door at that precise time when you still had the time to shift your focus in even what your PhD was about, but also about how you were talking about your PhD? What I find really interesting in talking to people so far is that it's like subconsciously, because the passion is there, it's like whether we're aware of it or not, we're constantly looking for signals to help us get there. Yes. You started out with a degree in computers. Mm -hmm. And like, so when you were filling out your CAO form, did you even think about a career in space or was it so out there and impossible in your head that you didn't even consider how you could do it at that 16 17 year old phase in your life
1: definitely the latter i, I think yeah. um you know um without sounding too mercenary but we were given a very strong line from, from a lot of people that you know mm. uh you need to have a job you know, buy a house 2.5 children yeah, uh, yeah that, that yeah. kind of that kind of dream and uh, and it's, it's a very appealing dream and it's, it's a really good dream as well don't get me wrong when you have an idealistic perspective on things, it gets a little bit crushed around that time, especially when you go through the machinery of you have the leaving service and so forth. Yeah, uh, yeah. And then you don't really see the opportunities that could happen. You just see a, a form with CAO points. and yeah. That's not a good indicator for your potential in the future. Um, so for me, it definitely was a, a question of, I didn't see a clear path to do this kind of work. It, it was impossible. Better do something else I'm good at.
0: Where did it all start? Where did the fascination for space begin? And what age were you when that kind of light bulb moment happened for you?
1: I think for me, it's been almost a lifelong. It's hard to, to pick a particular age. Uh, I don't joke when I said my mother used to like leave on, you know, shows with uh, starships or watching the shuttle launches back in the eighties. This stuff I used to watch all the time, and you know, I, I became deeply fascinated by it. You know why? Why is it T-10, you know? Why is the, those rockets falling off the side of that bigger rocket, you know? These are the kind of questions that began to, like, really draw my attention. And um, I also had a, a, have a brother who, who was, at the time, big into, into uh, he loved the, the idea of flying. He wanted to become mm-hmm. a pilot, maybe. Mm-hmm. And because we lived so close to the airport, we were constantly exposed to, you know, jumbo jets, 737s, everything taking off, leaving. And all this stuff kind of just got into my head what a fascinating world aerospace was, you know? And uh it's it's a love that's never never left me. I I'm super happy to be working in space now. Uh, but I also love flying as well. Like I'm I'm, I'm doing my traineeship at the moment Brilliant. for private piloting. You know, it's it's a deeply fascinating world.
0: Yeah, so it was it was probably actually where you lived as well. It was all these subliminal messages around you. And and so it sounds like your fascination began with trying to understand how these amazing Feats of engineering, you know, which all aerospaces and aviation is behind, you know, being able to use air to keep these objects in the air, and and so it sounds like you know, as a kid, you were kind of looking at that and trying to figure that out. Is that where the fascination began? Is it like a kind of an engineering, technical thing?
1: Yeah, definitely, um, and also, you know, it's it's uh, it was also a bit of an exploration thing, like in the sense that mm-hmm. uh, you know, you look at uh, you know, once you kind of understand a little bit about. You know what the earth is it's one planet in a vast cosmos you realize well what, what's what's around the corner you know you have tv shows like star trek feeding you like you know people on board a fantastic starship flying around doing amazing things interesting mm. and that's that's deeply appealing that kind of stuff really got me interested in saying okay th- these are fascinating tools these rockets and these aircraft and they can get you to, to amazing places um what's what's around that corner you know this is Uh, Even to this day, I'm still fascinated by what we could potentially find uh, going in as we we start to explore. Mm -hmm. This is what keeps me motivated. Mm -hmm.
0: It's so interesting, Aidan. Was curiosity sort of something that you were very comfortable with when you were younger? You were curious about something, you'd go find out or you'd ask a question. You had a a positive education experience in your formative years?
1: Yeah, uh, my parents were were really good in this front. So whenever I expressed an interest in something, they'd often go off and grab a book and throw it at me. Uh, so when I had an interest in space, they got me a book on astronomy and that was fantastic because it answered like 90% of the questions like, which they couldn't answer, <laughs> um, which, which probably made life easier for them. But, but it was a positive thing, to do. it was the right thing to do. And um, from an educational perspective as well, I certainly had a couple of teachers who, who stood out to me in terms of uh, giving me a good technical background on certain things. Um, from an education perspective, the real eye-opening moment was probably around the time of my master's and my PhD
0: yeah.
1: uh, when I was working with... Good scientists, excellent scientists, and uh, mentorship for some brilliant people like my professor at the time. And uh, under them, then you begin to understand, you know, what's the nature of how do do you do scientific work? What's the, how do you address these curious questions? And and, uh, for me, that's been the best gift of all time. It's it's the the ability to reason through problems, solve them, and and get an answer. You know.
0: Yeah, the scientific method. Yeah. Once you have that, it gives you great confidence in trying to understand anything really, because you have the tools and and the right approach. Yeah, it's it's really important.
1: I often think it's something that we're lacking is we should instill that capability in people at an earlier age who would be in a much better place.
0: Just before we go on to your current role, when you were doing your degree and your master, did you ever publicly tell anyone that you wanted to be a part of space or was it something that you kept quite private?
1: I probably kept it fairly quiet. Um, Mm -hmm. I think people would probably pick up on my interest of things like science fiction and, and space. But if I told people that, you know, my you know deep childhood ambition was to do something in space, you know, or even go to space, I think part of me would be a little scared because you'd be open to ridicule perhaps, you know? Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. So for me it was always something I kept a little bit quiet uh, in myself. That was just the way it was at the time, you know?
0: That really resonates with me, Aidan. I would be a similar creature, but I definitely see now it's very different in Ireland. Very, very different. It's uh, much more you know, of course, you can do anything you want, but at that time, it was an education was a means to creating a very stable life for yourself, and it right. wasn't really about it connecting with your passion. Yeah. Uh, whereas yes. now, there's very much the alignment around that, which I'm delighted to see. So, when you applied then to ESA, that must have been an, an incredible thing for you that all this passion for space and never kind of really allowing yourself genuinely think that you could have a career in it and you open a door and all these opportunities arise thanks to your mentorship with your professor in, uh, at DCU. Now you've got something that's of value to ESA. I don't know if you can actually describe that feeling, but just that shift in realising that you're going from something that seemed absolutely impossible, and it's not something that Aidan Cowley is ever going to have in his life, to suddenly this door starting to creak open.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's it's an incredible ex- experience when you realise um, that you know you're suddenly in, in the place that where you kind of want to be. You know, I count myself ex- extremely lucky to 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 have that an experience, and there's not a day that goes by where I don't pinch myself and realise I'm getting to do something that I deeply love doing. And they're paying me for it, which is hilarious. <laughs> so I don't tell them this; like they could they could cut my wage in half, and I'd still work for them, you know. Um, so for me, it's it's uh, it's it's an incredible experience. And you've you've worked with some people with Isa and Eve. Um, yeah. They're they're, they're a genuinely incredible mixture of people. Uh, mm-hmm. They are some of the most uh, passionate, skilled, and resourceful people uh, that I've ever met. And I've met some pretty clever and uh, brilliant people back in Ireland uh, as well. Um, but what what ESA does and and the mixture and the teams and the technical challenges they have to face and address, uh, it's seriously impressive stuff that they do. Um, yeah. Any one mission uh, is is a culmination of many people's uh, years of work, and uh, mm-hmm. they never get they never get jaded by it. They just keep doing it. You know, it's amazing.
0: Yeah, and thousands of people, a lot of people yeah. that we'll never hear of, and ten or twelve years in the planning for most um, science missions as well, at least if not kind of twenty.
1: I was on the, the phone to my boss just before I talked to you and he was saying that the mission that he started working on 18 years ago is about to about to go, go live now in the next oh 2 God. years and he said that's careers of work you know
0: I think the whole space sector I'm beginning to understand a little more as everyone I speak to time is it's measured differently I think whenever you are yeah. planning um, anything related to space because it just takes so long to plan and to and to execute And so now, you know, with all that, you're now working in the Astronaut Centre. It's a pretty exciting place to visit every time I go. Anyway, I certainly love it. Tell us a little bit about the activities that take place at the Astronaut Centre before we get into your specific speciality.
1: Sure. So the Astronaut Centre, it's a centre that's essentially the the focus for human spaceflight within Europe. And it's the predominantly its it's responsibility is to support and, and look after the astronauts on their missions to ISS and in the future, hopefully beyond that and uh, it's been set up uh, purposely to do so. It has kind of three major divisions, so to speak. Uh, One is the training team, uh, whose job it is to support the astronauts in their training to make sure that they're as qualified and as capable as is necessary, uh, as mandated by the international agreements that that manage the the ISS. Uh, You have a a space medicine team uh, whose job it is to uh, physically support the astronauts, uh, to make sure that they are healthy before they go to space, to make sure that they're healthy when they come back from space, to rehabilitate them on their missions, uh, after their time on orbit and then we have the the crew office which essentially contains the astronauts themselves so this is their their office spaces where they are stationed so to speak um, of course they are also sent across to different uh, facilities NASA and nasa and, and other countries their you know residence uh, as as astronauts is is meant to be here at uh, at cologne it's a fascinating place to work it's really the coal face of human spaceflight and you get to mm-hmm. see Everything from like the, the trivialities of getting something onto the space station to the, you know, the fantastic uh, experience of seeing one of your friends being launched on a rocket and coming back down. Mm-hmm. It's, it's incredible. Mm-hmm.
0: Because, of course, a lot of the astronauts, you know, when they're not in mission, they're, they're also hanging around in the astronaut center, getting involved in other activities um, as well. So I'm right. sure you're well used to seeing many astronauts all the time. On a daily basis where you work? Yeah, uh,
1: for example, my, my, uh, my colleague uh, Matthias Maurer is a German astronaut. Uh, like he's part of the, the team that I work at, at the moment, so you know, we interact very regularly. Uh, in the past, uh, we had Samantha Cristoforetti uh, as part of our team, mm-hmm. yeah. and uh, as you said correctly, the astronauts are, are there doing lots of other supporting activities, management yeah. activities, so you, mm-hmm. you, get to, you get to hear their experiences um, directly, and uh, it, it's, it's a fascinating world, you know.
0: Yeah, it is. It's a great place to visit. And your work, I think, is particularly interesting. Of course, for those people in Ireland who have been to baking in space, they would be familiar that we always try and get you over whenever we can. I know you're busy with Romain Charles, also from the Astronaut Centre, involved in in crew support, because your work is really about the future, uh, yeah. can you just describe very briefly your job?
1: <laughs> uh, sure, so uh, my, my job is uh, as a science officer, I'm here at, at the centre and my job is to support the centre as, as it embraces uh, a future of exploration. So at the moment we do a lot of our activities focusing on ISS uh, and that's fantastic, uh, it's amazing what we do there, uh, but increasingly um, people are now looking further afield as to where human spaceflight will go next. And the big challenge, big challenges we may face when we go there. So the next logical target that's on most roadmaps from most agencies is is the moon, either orbiting the moon or on the surface of the moon. Most people might have heard about the famous uh, new Artemis program from NASA, yeah. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Uh, where they wanted to uh, build up sustainable exploration of the moon. And uh, the challenges there are quite quite significant. You need to understand, first of all, that the moon is, is an environment uh, radically different to anything we've we really experience here on Earth. With a radiation environment, that's, that's different. With a temperature gradients from minus 180 to 100 degrees Celsius. Uh, with a day-night cycle that's two weeks long. You have to look at this and go, that's a pretty horrible place to, to go when you think about it. Yeah. There are ways to perhaps sustain yourself there. And one of the activities that myself and my team look into is, you know, how could we potentially do that? What, what could we find? locally on the moon that would actually make uh, sustainable exploration a possibility. And the, the value of, of doing this on some place like the moon is that it's, it's, a, it's an incredible testing environment. Uh, it's such a harsh environment that if you can master these technologies there, then they can be expanded upon to other places, for example, Mars. And uh, it's also a great testing ground for, for these technologies because you know it's a paradigm change. It's, it's, it's a place where we need to practice something very new and different, which is The idea of moving beyond, resupply all the time from somewhere like Earth, you know. Uh, As you go further into space, the idea of sending, uh, you know, conveyors of equipment from Earth all the time is a bit comical. So you need to be able to, you know, sustain yourself, you need to be able to live off the land. And uh, the Moon environment is is a great place for this, and myself and my team, uh, we're looking into how we can enable lunar exploration and how we can make such exploration sustainable.
0: And, and so can you give us an example of some of the projects that you've been doing in terms of, of, of trying to achieve that goal?
1: For sure. So uh, ESA have been actually quite active in this area of looking into how we can make uh, lunar exploration sustainable. Uh, one of the projects that we've been looking into is the concept of perhaps using the, the loose fine material that you find on the surface. This is what we call regolith mm-hmm. and it's ubiquitous. It's everywhere on the, on the lunar surface it's a hazard in one way, but it's actually also a potentially a resource that we could use. On two fronts, first of all, you could potentially collect this regolith, uh, compact it into bricks, and then use that for building a radiation shield to protect you against yeah. the, the harsh environment. Or second of all, you can actually do some pretty really clever chemical work and actually uh, break this regolith. It's made up of a lot of uh, materials, what we call oxides, so essentially mm-hmm. oxygen bound uh, to minerals. And uh, you can extract this oxygen. So uh, when you actually look at the composition of the moon, about forty percent of it is oxygen. So you really? need to find, yeah, you need to find a way to actually crack it and get it loose, and then you have yourself a resource there that's uh, extremely valuable—not just for breathing, of course, but also for for rocket fuel.
0: That's incredible. That's quite a mind you have there, Aiden. <laughs> That That's able to think like that. So let's just kind of break that down a little bit. So, are you in a meeting where they go, right, lads? We have to think about how we can use the moon's surface. Like, where do you start in seeing that opportunity? Obviously, with your materials background, that's a huge advantage. So you're just thinking materials, 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 and you know what they're composed of. But where do you start to see a material and figure out an opportunity or an application for that material?
1: So this is uh, a little bit where we kind of take our cue from our patron saint, which is MacGyver. Uh, (laughs) So... We kind of look at uh, you know, this harsh, desolate uh, landscape of the moon and realize you know, we're stuck on this desert island. Uh, how the hell do we get off it or how the hell do we survive here? So we basically look around us and see what, what we have. Uh, so you know, we have the regolith. Uh, we see that's everywhere. Like you said correctly, what is it made of? You know, is there something there we can use? There's metals there as well uh, bound in that regolith. We could potentially use that maybe. Uh, we also look around the environment. We see like, the shadows, the cold shadows and the, the light mm. areas are mm. quite warm. Maybe that's something we could use. Is there any, any tricks we can use to play off the temperature difference between the cold and the dark areas and, and the warm uh, illuminated areas? We also look into things like if we need to stay safe, can we not just you know, dig a big hole? Maybe uh, going into these lava tubes that we find mm. on, the, on the lunar surface, is this a good place to stay uh, to protect ourselves? You know? So you, you kind of look at it a little bit like a survivor mentality. You know? yeah. What do you need to survive here? It takes a, a slightly different lens to, to look at that landscape and realise there's actually resources there. But this is uh, this is what the training that we have and this is what the understanding of that environment allows us to do.
0: It's so microscopic. I've spoken to some people at NASA who were involved in, like, in designing the lunar lander, like Michael Interpartolo, and all of that is macro, yeah. and it's all large-scale and I know that there are people that are getting into the minutiae in order for that to happen. But what I find really interesting is when you speak, I see myself on the surface of the moon and I'm kind of looking around, kicking a few stones to see what do we have. And and it is that thing of when you, I mean, with any explorer of old, when our seafaring explorers arrived at a new country for them, yep. they looked around and said, right, we need to build houses, here's wood or everything. You're kind yeah, of yeah. thinking like that. But, but what's really interesting about what you guys are doing is we don't actually know a lot yet, and yet you're already trying to figure out, you're like trying to future design for something that we, we're we already trying to figure out. Well, what do we need and what's there and what does that look like? And you're already getting into the detail of, well, when you get there, we can give you this and this and this and this. It's, it's very scientific. It desperately needs the scientific method, actually, doesn't it, in order to be able to really work at that pace and at that kind of level of detail.
1: Yeah, for sure. it, it is a, It does require a lot of technical understanding of how you might do this. Most people wouldn't have a clue how to get oxygen from sand, yeah, but it, it can be done. Well, what I really enjoy about my job, though, as well, is that sometimes we don't know enough about what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And in those cases, we often just uh, kind of do a bit of a, again, praise MacGyver and come up with a crazy <laughs> idea and just try to do it. You know, My previous boss, Samantha Christofretti, used to call it practical brainstorming, where we just literally... Mm-hmm start grabbing things and see, actually, will this work? Or, you know, when we try it this way, what happens? And um, often this is something that the, the agencies uh, in the past were a little bit afraid of doing, you know, might look a bit comical or may not look very professional sometimes. But uh, we find actually uh, with our team that, that this kind of way of brainstorming things actually works well. And I think as well, if you look at SpaceX, they do something similar. They just blow up rockets mm-hmm. all the time. and They learn from mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. There, there's a value to sometimes engineering a solution and seeing it fail, you know?
0: It sounds very collaborative. It sounds very creative as well. It sounds like you're, you're firing all aspects of your mind. The brainstorming sessions are incredible. And yeah, um, yeah.
1: So the, the you get a lot have, from them. The team I have is actually, uh, we have a lot of young graduates and uh, even trainees and interns of part of our team, as well as more seasoned researchers. Um, and this is great because the one thing about space is it tends to be sometimes quite conservative. And the great thing about younger people, and I include myself mm. uh, as a young person still, Is that, you know, we approach these problems and we go like, well, have you tried this? You know, sometimes we break down the problem and try it with with either a new solution or an old solution re-imaged that maybe someone might not have thought about in the past. And um, I think the the, the brainstorming sessions you have are fantastic. There's some Mm. really clever ideas that come out and some hilarious ideas that also pop up. um, but, But we laugh at them and we go, well, maybe it's not so crazy. Maybe we should try it, you know.
0: So you must have a lot of little pilot projects on the go all the time, testing little things, uh, little mini systems all the time to try and figure out if they're worth exploring further. Is that how it works? You just try things mm. and then go, yeah. Mm, yeah, yeah.
1: Exactly. That's exactly how we work. And this is how we fit into the bigger ESA picture as well, is that we, uh, within our directorate of human spaceflight, uh, we look into these kind of low technology ideas, these low concepts. Yeah. And then from there, we, um, uh, if they are particularly... Good ideas, And we think, hang on a second, this is actually something very interesting. We give it to our colleagues to to develop further. And then the, the real power of ESA kicks in, where they can magnify the power of many brilliant minds, engineers and scientists to really amplify it and bring it up a level, like you know.
0: So you're like an ideas factory really, Aidan, you yeah,
1: guys? Yeah, uh, we like to think ourselves as a bit of a, yeah, a skunk work slash brainstorming slash so.
0: practical think yeah. tank, you know. Gosh, that's a really interesting, very, very interesting area. And then looking into the future, ESA is definitely supporting a lot of around Gateway and being a part of that, which is the next sort of space station that will orbit the moon. And so it's a very exciting time to be a part of the European Space Agency. What specifically are ESA getting involved in, in terms of the big projects that will allow us to participate in such a huge achievement?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, ESA, uh, as you said correctly, from the, from the last uh, ministerial council, um, a lot of decisions were made already on, on, on where ESA should participate in future lunar exploration activities. And the Gateway is, is a big part of what we're going to be contributing to. So already, uh, I believe there's two modules in design and production from ESA side that we will supply to this international endeavor. And in doing so, we hope this will give us eventually access to the lunar surface as well, so that we'll be able to potentially have Europeans walking around the moon in the not-so-distant future. fantastic. Also, a lot of other cool things are happening. Uh, One in particular, linking back to what I mentioned, is this idea of producing oxygen on the moon. Uh, Yes, we do that uh, in different levels at ESA already, Um, but one of our ambitions is to actually fly a pilot plant, uh, essentially a payload on a lander to the moon, which will scoop up some regolith material, put it into a reactor, and then produce uh, a certain amount of gas, uh, oxygen, uh, and also hydrogen, perhaps, as a product. And this proves the principle that, actually, yes, this works you know this this actually gives us a product we can use that's deeply exciting as well like you know so there's, there's a whole host of really interesting ESA activities uh, kicking off about the moon it's a fantastic time to be involved in exploration
0: it a, yeah it really is a fantastic time the last time I was with you you were spending a lot of time creating a simulant off the regolith in order for you to understand its behavior is that project still on the go or have you just moved into a whole new area or you were talking about maybe setting up a, a habitat on site at that time, I'm not sure. I know things change regularly in research.
1: Yeah, no, it's, it's still, a, still a big part of our plan. So the, the facility that we're hoping to build, uh, right beside uh, EAC, it's, it's called Luna. Mm-hmm. And essentially it's a, an analog facility, essentially a facility that mimics some elements of the lunar surface. Because of that, it requires uh, a representative material uh, of the lunar surface. Uh, so we, myself and my team, we basically looked around to see where we could find uh, 600 tons of this material uh, I can assure you it's not easy to find. Um, <laughs> so we actually did find it eventually a, a supplier of it, a, a capability to get it made for our requirements. And uh, this will essentially be in the next year or two, this facility we built, it will be filled with this material. And you'll be able to go to this facility and use it for testing your equipment for lunar exploration. Uh, we at the Astronaut Centre will use it for preparing astronauts for lunar EVAs in the future. Uh, we'll also be using it for technology demonstrations. So looking into, uh, like I mentioned, that uh, pilot plant, perhaps having a demonstration of that plant working at EAC initially before it would actually be uh, sent off to the moon. So this is part of how ESA you know, thinks, uh, how we at EAC think. We value uh, having practical training tools. Uh, you, you've seen our big training hall that we have at EAC. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So the lunar facility is essentially an extension of that philosophy uh, that we want to have uh, you know, a representative environment that we can use for testing. It'll be, of course, used by ESA, but I can also say here it'll also be available to anyone in Europe to use uh, as long as the idea is sound and that uh, makes sense.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. And then you also showed me very early, like when we met first, you were ahead of the curve really, but you were kind of dabbling with VR as well. Has that developed much, your virtual reality part?
1: Yes. Yeah, so this is also uh, one of the activities myself, and my team helped the center embrace is, is new paradigms for for how we can uh, uh, prepare and train. So the idea of using virtual reality for familiarization, as mm-hmm. into to them perhaps with the outside of the ISS or perhaps even the lunar surface before you even get there, uh, would be very powerful and something that we couldn't do in the past. You know? mm-hmm. We're also looking into using virtual reality for training existing uh, ISS concepts. Uh, to give you an example of this, um, the robotic arm on board the station, the Canada mm-hmm. arm, as it's called. Yeah. The classical way of teaching this is, is via uh, face-to-face instruction and, and, and a lot of PowerPoint presentations. And um, this is fine, this, this will get you up to speed and very competently so. But we also think that VR can give you a more intuitive understanding of how this arm mm-hmm. will maneuver. Mm-hmm. By being able to you know, go into a virtual reality environment, walk around mm-hmm. the arm and seeing how it's actually behaving as you give it commands. This is something that classically really couldn't do. And already we've had feedback from people who are using this to say that this is a much more impressive way and much more intuitive way of teaching this technology. So that's another example of how we as a team are uh, helping you know at the centre and ESA prepare for exploration.
0: It's fantastic. There's just so many fascinating projects. And then for you personally, would you like to go to space yourself? Would you like to be an ESA astronaut if you if you could, Aiden?
1: So I, I've certainly seen a lot of what the astronaut life is like, and uh, uh, it's not always glamour and glory. No. Uh, I can assure you. Um, so it's it's not a uh, as easy a ex- question uh, as you would pose. I certainly would love to go to space. Yes, uh, I think. Uh, an opportunity to explore there, to to go there and do something meaningful in terms of science or something would be deeply, deeply interesting and appealing. I'm not so sure if the the ESA lifestyle as an astronaut really would be for me. I think my cats and my wife would probably kill me if I was away (laughs) for so long. Um, But certainly I'd never say no if somebody wanted to strap me to a rocket and fire me into space, yeah.
0: Yeah, I think people underestimate just how much... Time they give uh, for training, particularly, yeah. and then the mission themselves—it really is a vocation in a way, isn't it? Every, there, nothing can come second to it. It seems
1: it's a really demanding job, uh, yeah. and it's not um, like only a small percentage of the time is actually spaceflight. The rest of it is is the training, as you said. It's the preparation. It's uh, a lot of support activities as well. Mm. And so they do a great job in presenting themselves yeah. uh, uh, in this regard as almost uh, superhuman in how they handle it. Um, but I assure you that there is a very human element behind all of this. Yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely. I think everybody at ESA works very, very hard. How do you manage? I'm sure you are under a lot of pressure from time to time. But for those of us listening, you know, or tuning in, who are are in more kind of grounded roles, how do you manage pressure?
1: It's difficult, um, always. Uh, with me, the, the biggest issue w- for for managing pressure is is usually um, you know when you when you see the value of a, of a technology and trying to push it, and develop it, yeah. uh, you want to see results. And uh, as anyone who's done science in any capacity tells you, the universe doesn't yield its secrets uh, so quickly or easily. <laughs> and uh, MacGyver is great, but MacGyver. Uh, um, couldn't, couldn't build a, you know, a space rocket in any of his episodes that I've ever seen. No. So you need to appreciate that uh, when you try to do something new, you're going to fail a lot. And uh, you need to have a really thick skin to understand that failure is part of the research process. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but even still, everyone's human. And if you're faced with consistent failures all the time, it starts to wear you, wear you down and stress you out. Um, the way I kind of counteract that is whenever we get a win, it's usually so much sweeter. Uh, so you kind of really celebrate your victories, you know, and uh, yeah. just kind of, for, for yeah. me, I have experience with that, it's, it's not so bad. Um, but for younger people who join my team, they do a project and it doesn't work and they think they failed a in life. Uh, I have to try to explain to them that that's, that's actually not the case, that you've probably advanced it more than you think. Um, but it's difficult for people to appreciate that, that uh, the failure can be as a powerful learning tool uh, as something you only really get uh, as you get older, I think, yeah
0: if not more. I think the yep. best things I've ever learned is from failing, because you really have to understand how some things work in order to get beyond the failure. I found that it's the it's probably the most important part. And I would imagine in, in the ideas factory kind of attitude that you guys have, failure is kind of key, because if you discover something by fluke,
1: yes. you can't really yes.
0: recreate it unless you really understand it. And to understand it, it kind of has to go wrong. Failure is a great thing, I think, that the space sector really understands, you know, the fact that they prepare for so much failure, you know, simulate, 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 like what could possibly go wrong? Try that. What could possibly go wrong? Try that. I think it's a great attitude to life in a way.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, the the famous expression, the failure is not an option, is something that the space people take uh, extremely seriously. And, and, you know, the operational side of space missions is so heavily uh, controlled and managed and, you know, understood in terms of risks. It's it's, it's seriously impressive. I guess the only contrary to that point is it would be that uh, I think some level of risk uh, has to always be embraced and um, this is something that I think uh, might have been lacking in in, in the past decades but I think now with new companies like SpaceX and Blue Origin and so forth uh, they're a lot more willing to take risks and you know never with human lives really um, but uh, at least at the early stages I think this is something that myself and and the team bring a lot more to ESA yeah. And then kind of
0: lastly Aidan you know just come back to Ireland and everything you're very good with, you know, championing anybody from, from Ireland. I've sent a lot of people your way and you've always tried to uh, accommodate them, whatever questions or whatever they have. Going back to Ireland and I'm sure a lot of people, you you definitely inspire me in terms of your work ethic and and what you've managed to achieve in your life and many more and younger minds as well. What life lessons would you share with people who... Have a passion, but don't necessarily know how to focus it or channel it.
1: Probably the most important part is understanding that uh, it's perfectly okay to have a, a deep passion and, and not to be uh, not, not to think that you can't do it. Perhaps for your life, okay, maybe you know ornithology is not going to be the thing that's going to pay the wages. But uh, <laughs> um, but you know you need to find the thing that that makes you resonate, that makes you happy, and and, and really. Uh, Try double down on that if possible. Uh, It it genuinely is um, um, a very short trip if you don't uh, uh, find something that you really love doing and and make the most of it. I I always remember a conversation with a friend of mine. He he goes like, you know, know, live to work or or work to live. You know, you need to find, you need to try find that place that that happy compromise where you're doing something that you enjoy doing that can also potentially pay the bills as well.
0: Yeah. Well, thanks very much, Aidan, for your time. It's been it's been really fascinating, and I really look forward to seeing what's going to happen next in in your career, and certainly um, at ESA. I think it's a really exciting time. I think this current generation are, are really existing at a time when I hope that space exploration continues to flourish in the way that it seems to be for the next five to ten years. Anyway, I can't wait to see what. What's going to happen next, uh, the next time I go to the Astronaut Centre? I'll be over again to annoy you soon, no <laughs> doubt.
1: Uh, you're, you're always welcome.
0: Thanks again, Aidan, and um, keep flying that flag for Ireland over at the Astronaut Centre.
1: My pleasure. Thanks, Steve.
0: If you like this podcast, or if you like what I do, or if you'd like to know more, or have a question, you can sign up for updates on my website, neveshaw.ie. This podcast is funded by my loyal Patreon subscribers, the subscription content service that allows me to create and share exclusive videos, advanced episodes of this podcast, provide special deals and discounted offers for patrons of my work. And thanks to those patrons, I get to make the work I want to make and can continue in my mission to get to space in earnest. And in return, I get to include them all in the adventures every step of the way. I couldn't do any of it without their support and I will be forever grateful to them. So thanks. And maybe you'd like to become a patron too. So, if you would like to support my mission to get to space as storyteller, further details of Patreon's membership benefits and about this podcast, upcoming events and activities, they're all available from my website, neveshaw.ie account. I'd love to hear from you, but we can connect in other ways too. If you're on Twitter, my handle is Dior underscore Neve underscore Shaw. If you're on Instagram, it's Dior underscore Neve underscore Shaw. Or on Facebook, follow my page, Get Neve to Space. If you just want to watch more content, you can check out my videos on my YouTube channel, Neve Shaw. Humans of Space is produced by Mark Gardner and Catherine Cunning at Oxford Sound Studio, Oxford in the UK, with music by Tom Beasley.